if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up to Matthew 7. That's where we are going to be today. Um, if you are new to our church or, or just kind of visiting or you maybe been away on doing some vacationing, we are uh, navigating our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's really chapter five through seven is the entirety of the sermon. So if you maybe missed some weeks, maybe jump back online on our app and you can catch up with us on where we kind of are. And uh, we're calling this series, The Way. Uh, I think a theme verse would be John fourteen six when Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, when Jesus made that statement that he was the way, um, he meant a few things by that. Number one, he meant that he was the way to the Father, uh, he also meant that he was the way to future glory, which is heaven. But he also meant when he said he was the way, that he was the way to life flourishing right now. So it's not just this idea of something we get later when we pray this prayer or go to Jesus. No, he's talking about he's inviting us that he is the way to a flourishing, abundant life right now. He's the way. He's the way. A simple illustration I'll give you to this. Uh, when I get in my car, like you probably, we get in my, our vehicles and we're going to an unknown destination. When I jump in the car, I don't just jump in the vehicle and say, well, I'll figure it out along the way. Let me just get in the car. I'll just take off. I'll take turns. I'll just do whatever feels right. I'll, if it feels to turn this way or I'll go this way. I don't just take off and maybe stop along the way and ask people for directions because we all know how bad that goes, right? We don't do that. Uh, I don't just go the way I want to go. I, I get in like you do. I get in the car and I type it up on my ways and my ways tells me which way to go. It gives me step-by-step instructions. And if I follow them, uh, it leads me to my destination, right? That's what you do. In the same way, in a spiritual sense, Jesus is saying that the destination for the believer is flourishing, abundant life. That is the way he's trying to tell us to go, right? And so for all of those in Jesus Christ who believed upon the Lord Jesus, we don't just get up. And then just because we're in the kingdom of heaven, start to go our own way. If that's the destination, we don't just start to go through life and say, I'll just figure it out on my own. I'll go the way that feels right. We don't know naturally which way to go. We don't know the way to go. We don't know the way to live, to speak. We don't know the, the way to do marriage properly. We don't know the way to parent our children. We don't know the way of use of our time and our money. We don't know that way. And it gets really dangerous when we start to try to figure it out on our own. We just kind of take off, well, I'll figure it out. Or we make this big mistake of pulling over in the drive of our lives and asking people which way we should go. Our friends, our coworkers, what do you think I should do, right? That goes really, really bad. It actually goes bad also if we make the mistake of following the way of the followers of Jesus. So follow Jesus, not the followers of Jesus, because we know that can be errant sometimes too, right? We don't just go the way to church and then go whichever way we want to in life. That is not the invitation that Jesus is calling us to. He says, come follow me. I'm the way to abundant flourishing life. So it's not just the right way. Jesus is not saying, hey, this is the right way to live. No, it's like, 
He's inviting us into abundant life and out of our apathetic lives. That's what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount, teaching us the way to abundant life. For the first two chapters, uh, Jesus has been showing us the way to things like character. What should our individual character be like? What is the way of integrity? Uh, What is the way of marriage? Talked about marriage. What is the way to true happiness? Um, He moved on to this idea of what is the way of worship? How do we worship? How do we pray? How do we give? How do we fast? We work through some of those things. Uh, Over the past two weeks, he began to teach us the way of wealth and then the way of worry. He's teaching us these things. And so today, he transitions to a different place. And if I'm being honest with you, as I'm, I've been, any, a, good, a good preacher, a good pastor will preach the sermon to themselves before they preach it to the congregation. And I have been doing that. And I'll be honest with you, Sermon on the Mount has been like a minefield for me. I mean, it's, it's each week just keeps getting harder and harder and harder and building upon each other. So if some of you were hoping that today the turbulent times of things we've been discussing the past couple of weeks of wealth and worry, if you thought that maybe they were going to give way to some more calm air, if maybe you thought that, that today maybe that the, the turbulence would subside and the, the, uh, the, the seatbelt sign would go off and we could start to walk around the cabin, stretch our legs a little bit. If that's what you thought, uh, sit back down, put on the seatbelt because it's going to be even more turbulent today because Jesus is going to address probably the most famous of all of his passages, really, these words of do not judge or judge not lest you be judged. This is going to be turbulent for us today. So think about it like this. If right now, if you're sitting here and you're saying either in your mind or to someone else beside you, hey, I know someone who really needs to hear this message. You've just proven your fact and your need to be here and hear the sermon today yourself. You've just proven your own guilt. And uh, I think that maybe even makes you more guilty than the person that you're thinking of. And I guess that makes me more guilty because I just called you out for judging. So I, I guess I'm leading, I'm leading in the way of judging. My point is this. This is a sermon for everyone, and it is not a sermon to be looking for the benefit of other people. Yet, we'll get to that in just a moment. Judge not lest you be judged, or do not judge. That's the passage that really is the staple of all these. This is, I believe, is the most well-known passage of Jesus and also the most misunderstood passage of Jesus. Fewer words are more familiar and fewer words are more fouled up by people all over the world. R.C. Sproul said that these words are every pagan's favorite verses. Pagan is an unbeliever, by the way, if you, it's church talk, but every Believer, unbeliever, every pagan's favorite verse is judge not. 
They know how to spell Jesus. Even when quoting this passage, they can, they can quote this passage like the kids at VBS who want a lollipop. You remember that, how that goes, VBS, right? They come up, oh, they can do that all day, all day long. They, they know this verse, they quote it very well. But the reality is, is they throw out every other word of Christ and they keep these words in their back pocket in case of emergency. The unbelieving world pulls this verse from their memories with absolute precision. But to their detriment, they pull it out of context. In, in our culture, of it, the idea of expressive individualism, do what's right in your own eyes, Right? And when you begin to speak any kind of truth, they use the old adage of what? You can't judge me. And they use that. They bend the words of Jesus to give themselves permission slips to live in a world with no standard of morality whatsoever. And they just cross out all of the words of scripture, but they do know judge not lest you be judged. Look at this picture. This, this really tells you what people do with this idea here. We have that. There we go. Look at that right there. It's a sobering picture of what people do with these words. Now, I don't want to beat up on only unbelievers because the reality is I don't think many people in church understand what it means either. I think these words, we are so confused about what he means by this actual text and we get caught up and we're just spiritually paralyzed. We don't know what to do, judge or don't judge. I don't really know. Someone might cancel me. Someone might call me call me out and call me and say, don't judge me. So it puts us in this position of paralysis because of the misinterpretation of the text. And church, if, if we, as the church, if we don't understand what Jesus means by this text, how in the world can we begin to even remotely approach an unbelieving world to win them for Christ? Who are in great error from the word of God, right? How do we navigate through these things and understand what Jesus says. How do we get answers to questions like, how do I go to my friend who's sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend? How do I go to my friend who is considering divorcing their spouse? How do I go to my believing friend who consistently gets drunk? How do I go to the one who's making an idol out of their career or their kids? How do I go and approach the friend who I know who's in direct rebellion to the word of God, direct contradiction? How do I go to them and then not get accused of being judgy or judging my friend or worse, getting canceled? We have to understand the teachings of Jesus here. It is imperative that we understand these things. And if we do, here's what it'll do. 
It will revoke the license of the lost to live however they want to live. That's one thing it'll do if they could understand this passage. But the other thing it will do, if we can understand it in the church, it will tamper out any self-righteousness that exists within the doors of the church. So what we're going to look at today in this passage are two things. We're going to see this idea of do not pronounce judgment. That's the first thing we're going to leave. He says, don't proclaim or pronounce judgment here. And then we're going to look at proclaiming truth. So you could, in a simplistic way, think about it like this. Don't judge, do judge. All right, those are the two kind of ideas. That's not the bottom line or the, the two points here, but that's the easiest way I can explain it to you. Don't judge, do judge. Let's look at the don't judge first in verse one and two. Let's look at this. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Now, a couple of things. The context of this passage, Jesus is moving to speak to the church collectively. All right, this is a, he's not talking to unbelievers and Gentiles. He's talking to believers here. And remember, he's been pouring in a lot of things, teaching them the way of Jesus and all the things we talked about earlier. They're growing in their knowledge. They're growing in their understanding of doctrine. They're growing in their devotion to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus knew there would be this propensity for as they grew in knowledge that they could also grow in a little bit of judgmentalism with one another and do this balance, checks and balances game. And some people are not getting it. And here's the varsity ones and you're just kind of slow. He knew the propensity for us to cause, to fall into this idea of judgmentalism. So he speaks here and says, do not judge do not judge. Before we look at what Jesus is saying here when he said, do not judge, I want us to talk about what he's not saying. Most pastors and theologians spend some time in here because, again, this is a confusing text or it's abused. Here's what Jesus is not saying here He's not saying that we should not judge in matters of civil law. Seems like common sense, right? Uh, a Russian 17th century uh, author named Leo Tolstoy, uh, just a great author, he took this passage and said, well, Jesus says, do not judge, so therefore we should have no judgment, no courts, no civil law whatsoever. He could be the dumbest smart man ever. Can you imagine a world where there was no judgment of right or wrong in the courts? Anarchy. Martial law. Can you imagine a world like that? Of course, that's not the case here. Jesus is not prohibiting the exercise of judgment in matters of civil law. So that's, he's not saying that. The second thing he's saying here, or not saying, is he's saying we shouldn't make judgment of discernment on people. We shouldn't make, he's not saying don't make judgments of discernment on people. In fact, the Bible is very clear that we should make judgments of discernment on people. Look down at the bottom of verse six. He said, don't give a dog what is holy and don't give a pearl to a pig. 
In verse 15, he says things like judge a tree by its fruit, or you need to be careful about wolves and sheep clothing, false teachers. Well, you can't do any of those things if you don't judge, right? If you can't spot a pig and you can't spot a wolf, how, how in the world can you do that text? You can't. You have to make some kind of judgment. The New Testament is full of things that tells us that we should judge of matters of discernment towards one another. When a brother or sister is walking in sin, yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, you should. The church affirming spiritual gifts, we have to make judgment. So it's like one of you comes up and says, hey, I think I want to sing. And then you get up here and we're like, oh, God, I don't know about that. We have to make a judgment of discernment in that, right? I don't really think so. I think your gift's over here. You know, we have to do those things. There's matters of church discipline that require matters of judgment. So Jesus is not saying that we are to turn a blind eye to sin, to be these flabby, spineless Christians who never stand up to truth. He's not telling us to be a kind of people, a peculiar people, to just abandon our brains also all in our lives and just have this Pollyannish view of the world. Rose-colored glasses. That's not what he's doing. He's not telling us to abandon all forms of judgment here. What is Jesus telling us to do then? That's the question. A few things. Here's what he means when he says, do not judge. The first kind of judgment that he tells us to not do is pronouncing a judgment where we play the role of God. It's the first one. Look at James 4.12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Jesus is cautioning us of playing the role of God as executioner, as one who kind of smacks down the gavel of judgment towards someone in a condemning way. Not judging and playing the role of God in matters of motive. You know how sometimes when we, we judge people's motives, like we don't know, but we judge their motives. We think we know. We say, I bet they did this because of this. I know that's what they were doing. No, that's playing the role of God because only God knows the human heart. He says, don't play God. The the universe is in the great hands of God. He is the great judge, and there's no need for us to do that. Our, Our duty, our role is to obey God, not play God. That's the first thing that Jesus is saying here the second thing he, he, I believe he's talking about here is do not judge means do not be quick to pronounce guilt. You know, sometimes when, when someone is in error or we see them to be, we just quickly rush into guilt. We assume the guilt before we give them the benefit of the doubt. We do that. We look for ways to condemn people quickly. We're very quick to condemn, a very slow to give charity to someone. We think the worst and not the best of people, don't we? And Jesus is saying, 
no, 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 don't do that. Do not judge lest you be judged. Be slow to condemn and be very quick to give charity. That's the second thing he's saying. Now, do not judge also means do not judge according to unbiblical preferences and personal opinions. We sinful people have this tendency to elevate preferences, opinions, and personal convictions. We try to elevate them to biblical proportions, don't we? And Jesus is saying, hey, no, 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 no. Don't take your opinions and your preferences and your personal convictions and make them because you'll start to make judgments on people. I'll give you an example of a few of these. There's this guy, his name Jerry Bridges, and he wrote this book called Respectable Sins. And it was this idea that we kind of classified judgmentalism into this respectable sins because we're doing it under the guise of a zeal for what's right. So he calls them respectable sins. One of the chapters in his book is called Judgmentalism. And he speaks to this idea about how personal opinions and preferences and convictions can oftentimes cause us to judge one another. He says these things, and they are very familiar to us. You know, he doesn't speak to the, um, to the specifics, but talking about gospel freedoms like the frequency of the Lord's Supper, liturgy within the church, things like that. But he speaks on three issues that are very probably true telling. He says, I grew up in the mid 20th century when people dressed up to go to church, when men wore jackets and ties, usually suits and ties, and, and then women wore dresses. In the 1970s, people began to show up at church wearing casual clothes, pants, jeans, open collar shirts, For several years, I judged them. How could they worship a holy God with such little reverence? Is that really their Sunday best? It sounded pretty convincing to him, he said. Only I was wrong. Nothing in the Bible that tells us what we ought to wear in church that's a cultural thing. It's not a biblical thing. Reverence for God is not a matter of dress. It's a matter of the heart. Judge not. Another thing he points out is he grew up in the area of the grand old hymns. Sung to the accompaniment of piano and organ, it was majestic to me. So reverent. Now, in many churches, the grand old hymns have been replaced by contemporary music with guitars and drums. How can people worship with those things? But the New Testament gives no such prescription. Oh, I still have a preference for church music sung as we did when I was younger, but it's just that. It's a preference. Not a Bible-based conviction. Yes, it's true that a lot of contemporary music is shallow and human-centered. But there is much that is God-honoring and as worshipful as our traditional hymns. Judge not lest you be judged. 
Alcohol is another one of those things. He says, uh, I, I early on in my walk, I found myself being judgmental when I would see Christians having a glass of wine at a restaurant. I did not have any clear evidence from Scripture. It was personal conviction. Upon further investigation, I finally came to the conclusion that in most instances, the Bible teaches temperance, not abstinence. Jesus said, do not judge. Listen, if we're honest, that might be some of you right here. We might have just kind of threw the rock and it might have hit you in one of those examples. Be careful about elevating personal opinions, personal convictions to biblical proportions. When you do that, it leads into pious judgmentalism. And Jesus says to you this morning, do not judge. And the last thing I think he believes, and I think this one's key when he says do not judge. I think this one is the, probably the most key one. Jesus, when he says do not judge, he's condemning a critical spirit of self-righteousness, self-exaltation, hypocritical, harsh judgmentalism in a way that is quick to point out the flaws in others and very slow to acknowledge our own sin. I think that is the thrust of his spirit here. Look at 7, 3 through 4 again. He unpacks that with an illustration. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. You hypocrite. Jesus is confronting, I believe, all of us in this space with the fact that we are inclined to discover much, much more easily the faults of others before the faults of us. This is, I believe, a part of our fallen nature to puff up self to put down others, to put others' sin in front of us and to put our sin behind us. This is our fallen nature, and it is to do these things. I find this tendency in my own heart. I'm being pretty open and transparent with you today, and maybe some of you are willing to admit that. I'll give you some examples of how we do this in just practical everyday life. Think about driving, for example. When, when we get on the road, do you, when I get in the car, do you know who I think the worst drivers on the road are? Everyone else but me. I, I'm driving down the road and I'm sitting here calling out all of these driving infractions. This lady's putting on her makeup. This guy's texting in his car. He's trying to do his radio. He's fixing his hair and he's all over the road. He's swerving. He's pulling out in front of me, riding my bumper. I am great at finding all of the faults of all the drivers on the road. And then after a few minutes later, my wife and her very helper-like spirit starts to point out that I'm doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. 
You got your phone out. You're off the side of the road. You're all over the place, RC. Get off that guy's bumper. And then, of course, I look at her, and what do you think I say? You can't judge me. No, I don't do that. But I tell you, it's very easy for me to find the flaws in other people. I'll tell you another way that this works out, and not in, a, in as much of a humorous way, but in a sad way, and it comes to marriages. Marriages um, with people in the church that are either in this coma-like state or they're in crisis and they're maybe even considering divorce and they come in to the office to speak. And, um, and, and so the guy comes in and they're in there and say, well, tell me about what's going on. And he's really good at pulling out the ledger of all of his wife's faults and flaws. She does this and he, she, she, she's doing these things. And she, 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 over and over again, he's telling about all of her flaws. And I say, well, what do you think the greatest problem in your marriage is? It's her. Well, I'll turn over to the wife. What do you think she says? He does this. He does that. He doesn't love me. He doesn't help around the house. He's not present. He, 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 he. Well, tell me, what do you think is the biggest problem in your marriage? It's him. How can two people who love Jesus ignore the sin in themselves so badly that they are so focused with their 2020 vision on the sin of their spouse? Those marriages never change. There is no hope for any kind of restoration or growth beyond the, where they are today because they refuse to see their own sins. Sad. It's very sad. It exists, of course, in the church, in our normal flow of life. We have people, um, and you, you might know someone, heck, it might be you, again, you, you're just good at fault finding. You would consider yourself to have the spiritual gift of criticism, of censorship. You're almost like the spiritual editor of everybody's lives. A PhD in censorship. You just kind of walk around and you see everybody's faults, including the pastor. I don't know why they do this and I don't know why they're doing that. Can you believe what so-and-so is doing? Oh my gosh, did you hear about Johnny or Susie? Did you hear what they did? And these are people that walk around constantly and they're not happy unless they're unhappy. This is the kind of spirit that Jesus is condemning here. Sometimes people come up after the service. I say, Pastor, I really wish my friend so-and-so, so-and-so was here because he could have heard that sermon. And then what do I say? Well, I really wish you would have heard this sermon. <laughs> both, both them and me proving the evidence that we see the sin in other people a lot more than in ourselves. Let me ask you a couple of x-ray questions here to see if Jesus is potentially talking to you this morning. And I'm telling you what, listen, this stuff hurts. It stings 
when there is disease inside of us and we go through the spiritual MRI or x-ray, it reveals stuff. And that could be really bad, but it could also be really, really good because it could lead to cure, right? Let me ask you some questions. Whose sin bugs you more? Yours or someone else's? Who are you most desperate to see change in your life? You or someone else close to you? Do you talk to God or do you talk more about the sin in others than you do talk to God about your own? Do you easily condemn others and excuse yourself, quick to judge others, but give yourself patience? Dads, do you see any of this potentially in your children or doing this with your children? Wife, do you see yourself doing these things with your husband? Bosses towards your employees, employees towards your bosses, pastors to your congregation, congregation to your pastors. Jesus is telling us when he says, do not judge, he says, do not play God. Do not be quick to condemn and do not have a harsh, self-righteous, critical spirit of others seeing their sin and failing to see your own. That is what he's saying here. Now, what are we to do? So he says, do not judge in those ways. Now, do judge. Second point, proclaim truth. Don't pronounce judgment, but do proclaim truth. Now, let's look at this. I'll show you in verses, or actually in verse five. It's the back end of five here. He says this. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Before we can rightly judge one another in the right way, before we can judge the world, Jesus is telling us this principle that you cannot have more zeal for the error of others that outpaces our passion to kill the sin in our own eyes. It's this illustration that he, of course, uses here that when you're picking at the sawdust of others' eyes with a pair of tweezers while you need a forklift to get the beam out of your own eye. He says, before you can do that, you gotta clean your own eye. You gotta have some eye surgery. You, how, how can a blind optometrist perform eye surgery on someone else? No one wants a surgery from a blind opto optometrist, right? You don't want that, that doesn't go good. So Jesus said, hey, slow your roll. You need to take the speck or the log out of your own eye before you even begin to check out your brother. Now, how do we do that? How do we take 
the log out of our own eye. What's the practical implication? Because clearly we're not physically walking around with a two by four hanging out of our eye. That's not what he's talking about. What he is telling us is to look at ourselves rightly. To proclaim the truth of the gospel to ourselves before we go and proclaim the gospel to other people. He's telling us to preach the gospel to ourselves. Preaching the gospel to ourselves, which is something we should do every single day of our lives, it reminds us of who we were and who we are. Proclaim the truth to ourselves. And so the reality is, when I do that, that, of course, puts all the focus back on me. And when I know that and I read my Bible and I understand my theology, I know that the scripture says that I am the worst sinner that I know. Like when I'm, 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 when I am tempted to judge other people, I literally don't know everything in their mind. I don't know what's in their heart. I, I could potentially judge them on a few things, right? Well, if I do the hard work of self-examination, there is no one more wicked than me. I know everything that I've done. I know my entire sin ledger in my life and everything that I've done. If Paul was the chief of sinners, Paul, chief of sinners. So Paul didn't say, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing better than that person. I'm knocking it out. I'm the apostle. I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm bad. I get it. But golly, look at this guy over here. No, Paul said, chief of sinners right here. And if Paul's the chief of sinners, I'm the chief of all chiefs of sinners. I know what I've done in my life. And when I know that, and I know my own heart, I'm a lot slower to condemn other people. Of course, I also know that when I contemplate and evaluate my own sin, it gets me really, really humble. But then the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by forgiving me of all of my wickedness, it lifts me back up. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, now I can clearly see the speck in my brother's eye. When I go to him, it's not in a critical way. It's not in a condemning way. It is in a Christ-exalting way. It takes, I think about that, it, it, that preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, it takes grace for us to really remember how much grace we still need. Preach the gospel to yourself. Proclaim the truth to yourself before you go to your brother or your sister. Now, once you do that, if you'll look at the text again, he didn't say, just deal with the log in your eye. He didn't say, your brother's speck, it's none of your business. It's not any of your concern. You just take care of your own. That's not what he said, right? He says, once you deal 
with the log in your own eye, then you can properly go to your brother to address the speck. Christians are called to judge one another. Look at 1 Corinthians 5.12. For what have I do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So it's not just a permission to judge one another in a right way. It's a proclamation. It is a It is an expectation. It is a command that we do judge one another. When we sin, we have the obligation to go to those that we love. Matthew 18 kind of maps that out, of course. But let's be honest for just a minute. Some of you never do this. You just never, ever would even dare go to someone and tell them that they're wrong. I think there's a few reasons why, and I hope I list these, not in, not in a condemning way again, but to point in you that, that you have a great need to point out the sin of your brother and your sister. One of the reasons that, that you may not do this is because you just don't know the word. You, uh, your biblical literacy is, is kind of at a juvenile level, so you don't know the word enough to, to even know you're supposed to go and confront a brother or sister who is walking in here. That's the first one. And so you can't grow beyond that by hearing my sermon. You, you have to get into the word. You have to grow in the understanding that God calls us to judge one another in a loving, discerning way. Some don't do it because they're afraid to offend afraid to get canceled or to they're afraid to get that whole you can't judge me so you just you just stop there which by the way that's a whole cultural thing the culture has informed your brain and made you scared to confront other people that you love and so you bought into the narrative of the the cancel culture and you don't want to get canceled so you're afraid to approach someone some of you don't do it because you have been harshly, critically judged by someone else in your past, maybe through the church. And so you're like, I know what that feels like. I'm not even going to dare to come to someone else and do this. I'm just going to love them. I'm just going to pray for them. I'm not doing that though, because that guy was a jerk or that girl did me wrong. And I don't want to be that person You are being governed by your experiences and your feelings and not the word of God. We are called to follow the way of Jesus. And he does tell us that we are called. I would even say when we do not proclaim the truth to brothers and sisters in error, I would even tell you that that is one of the most unloving things that you could do for a brother and sister. You know what that says when you don't go to your fellow man and confront them when they're in danger? It says, I care more about me and my feelings 
than them. I don't want to feel bad at saying my feelings. It's a very, it's, it's a very selfish posture to take. True love disciplines, doesn't it? True love goes in a very humble manner, gospel-centered manner, and goes for the purpose of redemption and restoration. Repentance. It's not punitive. This is not condemnation. We do it for the hopes of restoration and that the brother turns away from their sin. It's a redemptive thing. Listen to what John Chrysostom said about this idea. Correct your brother, not as a foe, nor as an adversary, exacting a penalty, but as a physician, providing medicines, yes, and even more, as a loving brother, anxious to restore and rescue. In summation, Jesus says, Do not pronounce judgment. Do proclaim truth. Don't judge. Do judge. That is the summary of our sermon today. Let me close with an illustration, a story I want to share with you. Most of us here have heard of Babe Ruth. Of course, you've famous baseball player, Babe Ruth. Well, probably uh, you've heard of him, but you've probably never heard of a guy named Babe Pinelli. Babe Pinelli was an umpire in Major League Baseball at the time where Babe Ruth was playing. Well, there was this one day, this one game, uh, where all 40,000 fans that came out to see Babe Ruth. He was the feature of all things. We want to see Babe, right? And so they get out there, and then what happened was Babe Pinelli, as the, the head umpire, he rings up Babe Ruth on strikes. Calls three strikes, Babe never swings the bat. Just rung him up. And Babe Ruth turns to Pinelli and says, man, do you know what you just did? All these people here to see me play, all of them, and you just called me out on strikes. And all three of those were balls. You can't even see right. You are not seeing this. You are not judging this right. He turned to Babe Pinelli, and Pinelli said this, maybe so, Babe. But mine is the only opinion that counts. Church, we live in this idea of this world, this culture, where everybody has their own opinions, their own level of judgment, own level of righteousness, all these things about who they think God is, and and they measure themselves, and all these things. Listen, the only opinion that matters is God's. He is the source and the substance of all truth that all things should be measured against. His opinion is the only one that counts. What is his opinion about us? If every one of us must be eventually judged by God, 1 Peter 4, I think, is kind of unpacks that, that if every one of us have to be judged by the just judge God, and we're going to all stand before him, how does he see us? His his opinion is the only one that matters. It's the only one that counts. So imagine, just, just a moment, use your sanctified imaginations that we are in the heavenly courtroom and the just judge God is standing 
on a bench. And he looks at us. He sees us. Do you know what he sees? He sees the natural man guilty. Guilty of throwing out the judge not phrase our whole life. Guilty of living however we want to flippantly and then using judge not as a permission slip to live however we want to. He sees a bunch of guilty people who've abused and cut up that passage and messed it up our entire lives. He sees people with harsh, judgmental, self-righteous, critical hearts. He sees us rightly. He sees people like you and me who've shrunk back from proclaiming the truth to people that we love. That's how he sees us. And God, being a just judge, when he sees guilty people, what does a just judge do to guilty people? He punishes them, right? If he just let everybody off the hook, he wouldn't be a just judge, right? So he, he must punish the guilty. And that's all of us. But God is more loving, more gracious more merciful than we can ever possibly imagine. Instead of God pronouncing condemnation on us and laying down the gavel, he made a way for us to be absolved from our guilt. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who was blameless, blameless in life, blameless in a court of law. He has no offenses whatsoever can't be accused of anything. He's perfectly innocent. And after he lived that life, he goes to the cross. And on the cross, of course, he is paying the sin debt of all of the people who've abused this passage, who have judged harshly, judged critically, who have shrunk back from proclaiming the truth of God. And he's taking on the penalty of all of us, dying our death, and then defeating death, rose from the grave on the third day. And for all who believe that Jesus did that on their behalf, that God judged Jesus instead of you, you now stand before God blameless. Forever and ever and ever. The sentence has been handed to Jesus, not you, and you will never, ever face charges ever, ever again. Do you know and believe in Jesus Christ? Everything we do here, of course, at the church is a, is a pointer to the gospel because a Christless sermon is no sermon at all. So if someone in here today, you might be thinking in your mind, okay, well, if I, I stop being judgmental, I start proclaiming the truth, and if I start doing these things, then maybe God will love me. No, no, no. Those are not the way to be right with God into the kingdom of heaven. It's just Jesus, Jesus and Jesus only. So today, if you want to give your life to Christ, what a great day that would be for you to do. Come talk to us at service. When you go out the door to the right, please come talk to us. We would love to tell you about Christ. For the rest of us, I'm gonna give you a moment of examination. I wanna let you sit where you are.
man, maybe you need to do some confessional work there with the Lord for just a minute. Um, and then, uh, man, then we'll stand up and we'll sing of the amazing grace of God. We'll sing in victory coming out of our time of confession.